You are now listening to The Secret Life of a Grad Student. I'm Megan. I'm Laura, and we are two grad students who want to share the untold stories of graduate students past and present. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in today. We are continuing our mini-series on overcoming obstacles with my interview of David Payne. Here it is. So I am David Payne. I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, and I am a Laboratory Leadership Service Fellow at the CDC. Um, David, how did you become interested in science, and were there any early influences for you? Yeah, so my my like very early entry into science sounds like a, a cliched a graduate school application, but it's true. My dad was diagnosed with cancer when I was nine. Uh, and I just, from that moment, wanted to cure cancer and wanted to study cancer science, which I thought was a thing uh, <laughs> at the time. Uh, a long time later, through sort of a long process, I realized that cancer research wasn't really of interest to me. And so I, I got into microbiology instead. It was kind of a weird fluke. The department I was at uh, in my undergraduate was a microbiology and molecular biology department. And in my junior year, they changed the graduation requirements for the department. So everyone had to take intro micro, even if you weren't a micro major. And so I took intro micro as an upperclassman in a class with a bunch of other upperclassmen who were like my same situation, just I'm graduating in six months and I have to take this. And it was the best class I've ever taken because we were learning like the basic concepts after already understanding all the molecular stuff. And so we got to get into like deep high level conversations. And so that really steered me towards micro and away from human centric things that I had focused on before that. It seems like you had a very strong influence to be in science. Were other people encouraging to you when you were like, yeah, I want to be a scientist. I want to cure cancer. Some, like high school teachers and things. My dad told me never to go into academia, and he was right. Uh, <laughs> he was an academic, and it turns out that that was a really hard life, which is why I'm now with the CDC instead of with academics. So your father was an academic, and what kind of academic was he? Uh, a pretend scientist. He was a social scientist. He calls himself that. <laughs> okay. So can you tell me a little bit about your graduate work and what your day-to-day -day was like? I studied Staph aureus, which is the bug that causes most staph infections, or MRSA, a lot of people have heard of. Uh, and I studied how staph forms biofilms which are like the colonies that it forms in a lot of medical conditions. It can grow on your heart valves or on your bones or on a medical implant of some sort. Uh, and that causes lots of, lots of medical problems when you have staph growing inside your body. Uh, and so we were looking at how those colonies, those biofilms form and how we could disrupt them. And so my day-to-day -day was really pretty typical for a microbiologist. A lot of cell, uh, not cell culture, a lot of bacterial culture, a lot of genetics, a lot of cloning and things like that. I identified early on some genes that were of interest to me in staff that were involved in, in biofilm formation and biofilm inhibition. It was very wet bench heavy. Like I, I was sitting at a bench pipetting or working with big flasks of bacterial culture all day doing 
doing biofilms, what I did was I, I would flow liquid media across different surfaces that I had staff growing on. And so my, my day-to-day was like monitoring these colonies growing, keeping them from overgrowing and things like that. What was your personal obstacle? Can you describe your condition in detail and how and when did it start? I have a condition called aphantasia. It's relatively rare, though for for reasons that I think are going to become clear as I explain it, uh, we don't really know how rare, but it's estimated at about 2% of the population has this this neurodivergence. What aphantasia is, is a complete lack of a mind's eye, uh, which is to say there's no visual or other sensory component to imagination or memory. And so... It's really bizarre. Uh, And as far as I know, I've always had it. I I don't remember a time when this didn't affect me. But if sort of to conceptualize it, because it sounds really bizarre to most people, if I ask you to close your eyes and describe Sylvester Stallone to me, you can do that if you want, or I can just uh, summarize what would happen in your brain. As far as I understand how a normal brain works, and this this is really weird to me, so I may be off, uh, but your brain like projects a picture of Sylvester Stallone and you are seeing that and you're describing it. And what I that's the part that I'm I'm kind of squishy on because it seems so alien. But what I know is when you put a, a neurotypical person, a, a normal person in an fMRI and you ask them to do a task like that, the parts of their brain that process visual imagery are active just in the same way that they would be active if you put a picture of Sylvester Stallone in front of them and ask them to describe it. It's the same part of the brain. For me, if you ask me to close my eyes and describe them, I can, right? Sylvester has the, the droopy lip. He talks kind Kind of funny because he's been punch drunk a couple too many times. He's Italian. He's tall. I, I can describe all these things. But the part of my brain that processes pictures doesn't activate when I do those. I have a list somewhere in my brain of what Sylvester Stallone looks like, and I can activate that list whenever I want, but I can't see him, which is weird. Uh, <laughs> and like I say, as, as far as I know, I've always been this way. I remember when, when you know, your kids and everybody has imaginary friends. I didn't notice this at the time, but I noticed later on looking back, I always called mine my invisible friend and not my imaginary friend because he was invisible. Uh, it was a puppy, but but I could never see him because that's crazy. It's not actually there. And I found out later in life that most people's imaginary friend is something they can actually like visualize or, or something. I, I don't quite get how normal people were. Because <laughs> to me, like there, there are all these words like envision or visualize or imagine or picture that all have very clear roots in visual imagery. I always thought that was just like a colorful metaphor, right? If you, if you, you know, the coach talks to you and says, I want you to picture yourself holding the trophy. I didn't realize you're actually supposed to like see a movie in your head of yourself holding the trophy. I thought that was just like conceptualize what it would be like to hold the trophy. I always thought it was just a, a shared metaphor that we all use. <laughs> So since uh, since this aphantasia, so since you've had it since you were a kid, did it impact mm-hmm. your early learning? It did, but I didn't know it. So I, I am kind of, I'm probably unique among the people you're talking to about their obstacles in that I didn't know about mine until I was an adult. And, and so looking back, there are things that I, I think about like, 
this is probably because of this, you know, the, this challenge I faced and this weird thing that I do to cope with uh, to, to process information is probably because of this. But I was never consciously trying to compensate for it because I didn't realize it was a thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, um, when, did you, when did you learn about it? I was 30. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had finished grad school, actually. It was right after grad school. I had just started my postdoc, um, and I read an article about about aphantasia, and it was about, like, uh, discovering it. And I went to my wife, and I was like, isn't this crazy? This article is about, like, is written by a guy who can, like, see movies in his brain, and he thinks this other guy is weird because he can't? And my wife looked at me and said, yeah, he, everyone can do that. I discovered that everyone around me is an X-Man with this amazing superpower that, that I didn't have. <laughs> I was going to say, like I say, a lot of the things that I've done to cope now that I know are looking back at like, what are the things that I did unconsciously to compensate for this? And how can I mindfully, consciously now improve upon that, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. And that's actually going to tie right into my next question, which, so one, I just want to state that I'm sort of amazed that you didn't know about this. And, and actually it was, uh, I actually posted something on Twitter today of someone who also recently discovered that they had dyslexia just after they finished their PhD. So I don't think it's as uncommon yeah. to not know that you have a condition or a disability until later on in life because you unconsciously cope for things. Yeah. Well, I think, I think especially if, if I can cut you off. Yeah, of course. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I think especially with with the sort of experiential things, you don't know how someone else sees the world, right? Like it, it's it's hard to know that you are dyslexic because you just assume the way I process data in my brain is the same way as everybody else. It's hard to realize that, oh, this is unusual because I can't see what someone else sees. I can't experience the world from someone else's perspective. Um, I, I often compare it to computers, right? If, if I have a command line on my computer and that's all I've got and other people have a graphical interface, if all you ever had was a command line, if you, you know, went back in time to 1982 or whatever and explained to them how a computer looks today, they just wouldn't understand that that was possible because all they've ever known is, you know, the, the green text on a black screen. Like that, that's how a computer looks. That's actually a really great analogy to my question, which is sure. like, is there anything about this condition that makes doing science challenging? Yeah. <laughs> so I always just thought that I had a really bad memory. That's that's what I've always said my whole life. I just really struggle to remember things. And it turns out there's a reason for that because I can't see them. And and so one of the things that's really hard for me is chemistry, is is remembering what molecule structures look like. And so having sort of that intuitive understanding that most biochemists or most molecular biologists can sort of see somewhere in their in their brain theater what the different amino acids look like and so uh, they can think about that more easily and I really even as someone with a PhD in in hard sciences I really struggled to remember like okay this valine to isoleucine mutation now what's that actually going to 
do? How's that going to change things? Because I just have a list of like, these amino acids are positive. These amino acids have rings on them. These ones do this. I, I can't see it. And so that that is really difficult for me to sort of conceptualize those sorts of things. I just had a quick clarifying question. You can see it when it's in front of you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, like you understand how like a positively charged and a negatively charged um, amino acid would interact, but if you look sure. away, not so much. Right. I I can't. So when I when I remember it, I I don't. I can't like call up. Uh, I can't conjure the structure in my mind and manipulate it, you know, and say, well, what if I put a positive charge over here? What would that look like? I have to sketch it out, and that's that's what I do because oh, I can't. Man visualize it <laughs> so you have to like go through your list of items and sketch it out yourself so does that make the process of learning and doing science slower yeah so i again i didn't realize why i was doing this but i i was looking back at college at undergrad you know and in all my like molecular biology classes and things like that you always have to like memorize all the amino acids you have to memorize all the nucleotides and you know draw them on a test and whatever the way i had to do that was by muscle memory and so like for example when i learned the krebs cycle for for metabolism i thousands and thousands and thousands of times wrote down all of the steps in the krebs cycle like copying off of a diagram i would do it doodling at church i would do it while i was watching movies i would do it whatever so that when they passed out the test on the Krebs cycle, the first thing I did was I flipped it over. I drew it out just by muscle memory. I knew exactly where all the lines went. And then when they asked the question of in step, whatever, when the, the phosphatase, phosphotransferase or whatever acts on this molecule, what's that do? I could just look at my diagram because I couldn't just conjure it up in my head. And I didn't know that other people could. <laughs> As someone who's abled, I guess, in that way, uh, it's it's just hard to imagine that scenario. It's okay. even harder for me to imagine it because I can't imagine things. <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> my wife gets so sick of that joke, but you've never heard me say it, so it's okay. <laughs> so since we're talking about grad school, sure. do you think you could tell me about a specific time when your condition interfered with your grad work? Sure. So like one of the really hard things for me, and again, this might sound kind of silly, I have real trouble recognizing people who I haven't met enough times to really compile a good list in my brain of what they look like because I can't I can't write a list. Uh, I can't see a picture. I have to have a list rather. And so networking was always really hard for me, is always really hard for me. So, you know, going to conferences, meeting people and trying to remember who they were the next time I saw them is really hard. And that's not like, that's not doing the science itself, but that's a huge part of the business of science, right? It's, it's about making connections and it's about knowing this guy over there works on this thing. This lady over here works on that thing. And if I talk to her, she can give me ideas for how to do this kind of thing. And that sort of memory is just really hard for me to, to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So how did you actually manage to network? Like how do, how do you overcome that? It's hard. <laughs> 
awesome. So I told you, I, I don't store images, I store text. Like my whole brain is just full of text files. And this is going to make me sound like a really creepy weirdo. But when I need to meet someone at a conference or when I need to recognize someone, I used to sort of do this subconsciously. And now I make a conscious effort to do it because I know this works. I look at a picture of them and describe them out loud to myself um, because that stores the text faster, making like a conscious effort. So you know, a few months ago, I was at a conference, you were at the same conference, and there was someone who I really needed to meet there for the paper I was writing. There was someone who I had to talk to. And I looked at a picture of her and I said, okay, uh, she's short. She has short blonde hair. She wears glasses. You know, I, I made this list to myself uh, so that when I saw her, I could recognize her and go up to her and talk to her. So, ah, short, short blonde hair, glasses. That's the one. That's the person I need to talk to because I couldn't recognize her. Now I probably could because I interacted with her a lot. But. Did you reach out to other people at the conference to help you find this person? Oh, yeah. I Well, not at this conference. I used to have a wingman. Uh, there was another postdoc in my lab who, who would help me because he, he knew that I had trouble remembering people. And so he would always help me remember who people were. Then he went off and got a job. Ugh. <laughs> So I know you didn't know about this in grad school, but something tells me that someone had to notice. Did you, if they did or if they didn't, like, did you feel like you were supported? Uh, I don't really quite know how to phrase this question because it's a little bit confusing. It's, it's not like you could outright tell someone you had the condition. Right. So I, I would say I, I didn't know there was a name for it. I didn't know exactly what it was, but I've always known that I really struggle with my memory. And and people were very accommodating with that, you know, and, and I had a really supportive mentor in grad school. And so, for example, like when I when I took my preliminary exam or qualifying exam, the way we did it at Michigan was we gave a public seminar and then there was a private uh, seminar with just your committee where they could ask you anything. You know, they could ask you, you're talking about cloning here. You're talking about doing mini preps. Tell me about all the components in Kyogen's mini prep kit. You know, they could ask you any detailed question they wanted. And so I had 200 slides prepared for that meeting. Uh, so that if they asked me some detailed question about, you know, what's the cut side on Eco R1, I, I can't remember that. I can't, I can't see that in my head. So I, I had a slide with all the restriction enzymes I was going to use and what they looked like. Uh, and my mentor was very good, I think, at, at recognizing, like, you're a smart guy, but your memory is not so good. So you should really not lean on your memory. You should lean on being prepared. <laughs> that that kind of thing, I felt very supported in that way. Wow, that's real. Um, <laughs> and you're very lucky to have had a mentor that sort of recognized this without knowing that it was a thing, just as you had um, subconsciously. So I have one question that's not on my list of questions. It's just kind of a curiosity question. Sure. Do you I feel like, like uh, you know, being a younger scientist through the age of the internet made it easier for you to do science? Probably. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine having to go to the library to find all the papers and things, especially since I have to find most papers that I have to find a few times because I, I don't remember what that figure looked like. I, I remember there was a figure that showed that this 
process is dependent on magnesium, but I don't remember what the figure looked like. And so I always have to go back and back and back to the papers. And I can't imagine doing that in the pre-internet era where I would actually have to go to the library and track down the 1976 March issue of whatever journal to find that figure that I was thinking of. So my final question, this one is actually on my list of questions. Is there a silver lining to having aphantasia? I don't have nightmares. Normal people have nightmares. I don't dream very often because my brain doesn't make pictures. And so I I don't often dream, which is nice, I think. Uh, (laughs) Nightmares sound really unpleasant when other people talk about them. Uh, (laughs) I can't imagine that. Yeah, I can't really think of much of a silver lining. It gives me an interesting uh, conversation at parties. (laughs) I love talking about it. I think it's really fascinating. And so that is kind of fun, getting to say, I've heard of something you have never heard of before, and it's going to blow your mind apart. David, I'm going to follow up on uh, not having nightmares. Does that mean that you, compared to other scientists, and maybe you do or don't know this, but do you feel like you have less anxiety, less imposter oh, syndrome? No. Oh, no. I have so much anxiety. It's it's remarkable. <laughs> so we, we did a... Pictures. Yeah, so we just did a series on uh, imposter syndrome, so I'm not going to go too much into it. But um, I know for a lot of people and like uh, the people that we talked to, some of them talked about how it manifests in imagination. Like basically you imagine yeah. all the scenarios for which something could go wrong and that prevents you from moving forward. So how right. does your anxiety or imposter syndrome ma- manifest without a mind's eye? Right, right. So I, I can't see myself living in the poorhouse when people finally discover that I'm a terrible scientist, which which will happen one day to all of us, right? We all feel that way. <laughs> uh, I, I, I can't see the visual of that, but I have this just like the feeling in the middle of my chest that there is a bear chasing me constantly. Just this this anxious fight or flight all the time. (laughs) I would say that the biggest thing that I've learned thinking about aphantasia and thinking about, you know, my life before I knew what it was and my life after I knew what it was, is that everyone is different. There may or may not be a name for what makes you different, but everyone has a different way of learning things and of communicating things. And and you have to find the things that work for you, even if they seem silly. Right. I mean, I, I told you earlier, I literally describe people out loud while looking at their picture, which feels tremendously weird, but it helps. And it, it makes me able to function like a normal person, uh, kind of. You know, and so you find the things that work for you and you make them work and you, you revisit them mindfully. You know, I, I, I had 30 years of unconscious coping. And I have over the last several years thought very carefully about the things that I do and say, is there a reason I do this? Is there a way I could do this better? And I think everyone could use that kind of introspection. Thanks for listening to Secret Life of a Graduate Student. Next week, Lore interviews Richard Mankin, a field ecologist with a rare muscle disorder. If you like this episode, hit the like and subscribe button. And don't forget to tell your friends about us. Till next time, bye!